Hi. Uh, sound booth? Ready? All right. Uh, welcome to the first uh, event in the winter 2012 new writing series. Um, I'm Professor Dollar. Uh, I want to thank the, the Dean's Office of the Division of Arts and Humanities and uh, the Sims Family Trust for their support of our series. Uh, and thank you all for being here. Uh, it should be a, it's a pretty fantastic, uh, series this, this quarter. So I hope you can make many more events than you're obligated to go to. Uh, and, um, I'd remind you to turn off your cell phones, uh, remind you that the, these recordings will be available online at, from, uh, the Special Collections Library here on campus. And um, and also let you know that you're fortunate that I won't be doing the introduction tonight. Uh, that um, that Hannah Tawater, one of our MFA students, is going to be introducing uh, Don Mee's work. So, Hannah, round of applause for Hannah. Thank you. Good afternoon. Can you guys hear me? Um, I'm here today to introduce the brilliant and distinguished Don Mi Choi. Choi grew up in Seoul, South Korea, later moving to Hong Kong before coming to the U.S. to study art. This navigation of borders manifests in her writing as she translates and explores issues of globalism, nationality, community, women, and more. Choi was first published as a translator of contemporary female Korean poetry in 2005. She currently has four books of translation to her name, the most recent being All the Garbage of the World Unite, a collection by South Korean poet Kim Hae-soon published last year by Action Books. Choi's first book of original work, The Morning News is Exciting, published in 2010, is simultaneously poetry and prose and journalism and so much more, transcending genre, a collection of truths and horrors and beauties that cannot be constrained by classification. Deborah Woodard claims this book to be one of the year's most startling and original debuts. One of her own MFA alumni, John Pluker, describes it as a seriously inventive manipulation of language, line, and sentence. As varied as the collection is in style, it is also so in thematics. She collages academic texts from the likes of Foucault and Freud with homophonic translations, explorations of colonialism and imperialism, globalization, war, instructions on how to be a woman, and more. She muses on the meanings of home. She demonstrates the effects of patriarchy. She proffers personal expositions of life in a war-torn Korea. She juxtaposes gritty realism with rich metaphors. The explosiveness and attunement of language, the depth and breadth of content, at once individualistic and collective, nationalistic and global, the morning news is the confessions of a multilingual tongue fluent in, poetic, in politics as well as poetry a soul divided between ideals, between homes, a woman with a voice, a powerful voice. Choi is a recent recipient of the prestigious Winning Writers Award, which is annually awarded to just 10 writers and whose selectors found the morning news to be a wildly surprising work describing the collapse of empire, bracing and invigorating. She is also the recipient of the Dayson Translation Grant, Korean Literature Translation Institute Translation Grant, an American Literary Translators Association Travel Fellowship, and has served as poet in residence at the Henry Art Gallery in Seattle. 
She holds a BFA and an MFA from the California Institute of the Arts and a PhD in Modern Korean Literature and Translation from Union Institute and University. Currently, she divides her time between translation and writing altruistically with teaching adult basic education at the Renton Technical College where she lives in Seattle. We are honored to have her here today, so please give a warm welcome to Don Mi Choi. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for being here, and thank you for the introduction. Um, sorry, I'm still recovering from a cold. I'll start with the morning news. It's exciting. Um, I make a reference to a student revolution, which took place in um, April 19, 1960. And my father was a photojournalist then, so he was able to uh, take photographs of that revolution, which was led by uh, college students, high schools, middle school students participated uh, in it as well. Uh, it was a pro-democratic revolution, um, and... Um, and my father uh, won an award for his photographs, and um, he was able to buy a tiny house, and I was born in that house a few years later. The morning news is exciting. To all boys and men, dandelions may not be weeds. They are related to chrysanthemums. Girls should. May all weeds dislocate themselves. Girls should. I clench my fist and watch the morning news. Dandelion leaves are bitter yet tender. Girls should. Chrysanthemums are admired. Beware, the early morning news is exciting. Special attachment. I take a long shower. Girls should. I have suffered. I've been mistaken. Doctors and nurses know absolutely nothing. I despise them. They know absolutely nothing. I know everything that will happen. I enrage the world. Girls should. My dishes are unbreakable. Exceptional attachment. Squeeze plenty. Girls should. Wash and wash, then write to the world. The news will break. Just wait and see. I have all the kitchenware. Just bring your clothes. Girls should. I write to the world. My book is taped up in a box. Wash and wash till the smell is gone. Blood is gone. I'm most bored in the morning. More on, on attachment. Everyone is born wanted or unwanted, but some may be born exceptionally unwanted or wanted. A nation may be wanted or unwanted, depending on what the other nation is thinking about. This nation was exceptionally wanted, then unwanted because it was thought to be precariously small. Whatever happens to this nation will be revealed gradually, even though the morning news is exciting. Fathers, sons, boys are usually exceptionally wanted. At times, they can be born exceptionally wanted, then unwanted because they are thought to be precariously secondary. This father was precariously secondary. He knew this nation well, but he knew the other nation even better. This is what happens when the other nation thinks a lot about a nation and stays an unwelcome stay. 
There is another nation that thinks about this nation, but whatever is to happen will be revealed gradually, despite the fact that the morning news is exciting. This father, who was secondary amongst wanted existence, had sadness about unwanted existence. Nevertheless, this father took pictures of this nation before, during, and after the war. A blue suitcase. Twin 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 zone, cameraman, run to my twin twin zone. A girl's exile excels beyond excess. Essence excels exile. Something happens to the wanted girl. Nothing happens to the unwanted girl. The morning news is exciting. Excessive exile exceeds analysis. Psychosis, my psychosis. Psychosis, her psychosis. Pill her and pill her and file her and exile her and pill her and pill her till axis and boxes and sexes. Let's get loud. Student revolution equals April 19, 1960, South Korea. S equals sex equals file, equals easy, R equals repeat, equals petite, A equals ask, equals ask, 19 equals central, equals cock, equals man, 1960 equals wanted, equals something, S equals south, equals world, K equals Korea, equals world, equals dear nation. It is easy to tell the uniform students are following and something is blazing. On the other hand, the morning news is exciting. Of course, near narration is exciting. Cameramen run with their shoeshine boys and watch them die. They made themselves into a single mass by locking their arms and shoulders and moving like a tide, hence bring down the world. Whereas the elite was petite, the center was cocky and manly. As you can see, dear nation was petite and wanted. Hence, dear narration, watch me shine. Nothing happens. I have written letters. I sat in my car and cried for a long time. Then I lashed out. I decided to write a long letter. When nothing happens, I cannot repress my rage. Far nation calls you and you go. You run with a camera. Far nation pays you to run. Hence, morning news is exciting. Far nation pays the petite nation to run. Naturally, you run and follow the bomber. You sit behind the electronic warfare officer and puke. Manage your fear. Far narration is here. Everyday life seen through everyday eyes. Troops on foot. Flashes of napalm intercut with everyday man singing and playing a guitar. Flashback to Ho. Everyday woman and infant looking distressed. Everyday man's guitar, POV from F4, very low level. Series of aerials looking back over everyday craters. Glistening water, aerial nation for everyday eyes. Hence, I wait for the morning news. She has written that nothing happens to the unwanted girl. What error? She's an errorist. This next poem has two dates, 1961 and 1972. Um, 1961, a year after the student revolution, Park Chung-hee uh, led a coup, he was a general, and came into power. And by 1972, he uh, changed 
the uh, South Korean constitution so he could be president for life. And then um, also it was, if you criticize the government, then you were breaking a national security law, which was primarily anti-communist law, uh, communist. Um, and so it was, of course, it was always wrong to do that, but he became legal. I mean, he sort of legalized it in 1972. A journey from near colony to colony. My message to you, I was left behind. Home is in layers. Your message to me. Green tea is the norm and nothing is added. In the colony's economy, it is essential that every opportunity should be taken to make oneself known. If you're from an unknown near colony, you are nothing and will duly remain so until the date of your departure. Take a sip and stay close to family members. Your luggage will soon absorb the fog. The ferry you are on is in for surprise, tea and the English. It is now evident that the colony can hope to support its greatly swollen population on a reasonable standard of living. Your language is optional. It is ideal for your new domestic arena, a three-bedroom flat and a balcony big enough to hold you and your sadness. We all appreciate the view of the harbor. Do not search for trees or blossoms. The sparrows will stop chirping after dusk. Do not let your coat weigh you down. There is no winter here. Of course, you may be low. That is the law. Setting up house in the colony usually involves relative safety and uncertainty. Have another sip. Green tea is the norm and nothing is added. Do not let the absence of curfew go to your head. We realize the distance is overwhelming. This is an essential aspect of the colony. If you're from an unknown near colony, it is not necessary to identify yourself. We are not interested. We appreciate rapid growth. My message to you, home is in layers. I live as if you had never left. I live in the house you were born in and speak your optional language. Here it is winter. I wear your scarf with ribbons and red mittens. I think of you as a child. You have a view of the harbor and I have a view of the river. The distance is overwhelming. There has been a change in the law. The 1961 law is reinforced by the 1972 law. What follows the law? We are low. Your mother sent the suitcase of used clothes. I wear your sleeveless dresses and smell your fog. My sparrows have no place to go. I don't know if my clouds reach you or not. I think of you as a child. I wait for your return. Your message to me. I know homesickness. It is imaginable and involves collectivity to some degree. It begins with a family in the distance. Safety is nothing, departure is nothing, colony is something, but near colony is nothing, winter is nothing, yet the law is something. Ultimately, you are low. Ideology exists in layers. The colonial is spatial, a descriptive theory, if you will. Dinner, the main meal of the day, originally taken at noon, had gradually been getting later until in the 18th century it would fall between three or four in the afternoon. In the early evening came the tea hour, the polite visiting time. Your family may feel awkward at a table. 
You are now separated by chairs. You now sleep high above the floor under the removable sheets. You dream in layers: the mountain, the sea, the river, the bridge, and the ferry overlap, fold, then depart. Your optional language is likely to deform. Your mother may develop a disorder. The price of the inner world. Take your shoes off when you enter the house, but it is not appropriate to do so in front of the law. Home is nothing, and so are you. Clouds fade over time. You must endure the distance. The fog is your home. My message to you: You are gone. Please come. I have your comb. I know homesickness. It unfolds like mother's umbrella. I dress your paper dolls, the penciled closet. I paste the bridge, your hairpin in my hair. The river is muddy. I unfold my arms and take off my shoes. I am none. Please come. I have your comb. Be low, be no. Say no to dinner and fog. Your message to me: Forgetting is lovely, and father's well is bottomless. Freud says. The way in which national tradition and the individual's childhood memories are formed might turn out to be entirely analogous. Indeed, a higher authority can shift the aim of the resistance to memory. Madness may be a form of resistance. Forgetting is lovely, and father's well is bottomless. In order to remember an incident painful to national feeling, a lower psychic agency must resist the higher authority. However. It is against the law. Tea and false memories. Which is lovelier, colony or near colony? The shift in the aim is minor. Forget something, then remember something else. The loveliest of all is the unconscious. It is lively. In defense of nation's paramnesia, tea must be served at all times. Migration, my nation. The family in the distance must be oceans apart. Closeness may lead to nationalism. Follow orderly obsessions. Wash and clean when in doubt. Scrub the edges of your memory. Childhood loneliness can shift its aim. Nation's loneliness is false category. Be fraud. Be law. My message to you: Are you sad? I'm not mad. You sat on father's father's lap. 1972 was the year of your departure. I remember your flowered shirt and shorts, a hairpin in your hair. Law was becoming, and you were leaving. My clouds followed you. Are you lovely? I am lively. My sparrows fly at night across the ocean. I remember your flowers. I am not fallow. I follow. Diary of Return, August eight, two thousand two. I arrived below the thirty-eighth parallel. Everyone and every place I know are below the waist of a nation. Before I arrived, empire arrived. That is to say, empire is great. I follow its geography. From a distance, the waist below looks like any other small rural village of winding alleys and traditional tile-roof houses. Surrounded by rice paddies, vegetable fields, and mountains, it reminded me of home. That is to say, this is my home. Close up, clubs, restaurants, 
souvenir and clothing stores with signs in English. That is to say, English has arrived before me and was here even before I had left. Papasan, Love Shop, Pops, Golden Tailor, Pawn. I followed the signs and they led to one of the gates to Camp Stanley, a heliport. That is to say, language is not to be believed but to be obeyed and to compel obedience. A woman in her 70s lived next to Love Shop. She was taking an afternoon nap. She has never left below the waist and eventually came to be regarded as a great patriot by her government. That is to say, she followed the signs and suffered from lice infestation during the war and passed the lice onto the GIs. I followed the houses that reminded me of home. They led me to another metal gate and barbed wire. Another woman was having lunch at my sister's place. She did not remember which year she had returned, except that she remembered hearing about the assassination of our father. That is to say, she was here and I was still elsewhere, and the unity of language is fundamentally political. She told me a story with her right index finger. Her finger fiercely pointed to her mouth, then between her spread legs, and then her behind. She had no choice under the GI's gun. That is to say, she had no choice about absolute choice. That is to say, her poverty was without choice. And when absolute choice was forced upon her, she chose a GI. That is to say, she chose empire, because empire is greater than our father. That is to say, she followed and left her daughter to its geography. And her index finger had no choice but be fierce under absolute choice. That is to say, she had arrived home. October 28, 1992. Yundumi's head was smashed with a Coca-Cola bottle. She was found dead, legs spread with a cola bottle in her vagina and an umbrella up her anus. That is not to say empire does not endorse one planet or father's umbrella. On the contrary, it enforces grammaticality within and without, before and after father sprinkles white disinfectant powder on the index finger. No one is supposed to be ignorant of grammaticality. September 10, 1999. Another mysterious death of a GI's woman. She had bled profusely and dark spots were found all over her body. Her face was flat against the floor with her tongue protruding. Her landlady called the police because she hadn't seen her tenant for several days. What kind of work did she do? She stopped working at a club in hopes of starting a new life. That is not to say GIs will now rape any women due to homesickness and R and R. What needs to be said is that from elsewhere, I translate the report of the death of a woman I met two months prior in Dongduchan, and that colonial distance can be saturated with separation due to homesickness of a different nature. That is not to say there isn't resistant bilingualism as opposed to colonial bilingualism predicated on oil and formaldehyde flowing as one river below the waste from empire's base, but that there is no mother tongue only a power takeover by a dominant language. Then translation for me is a form of exile and empire, R and I.
August 10, 2002. When I return, when I return, I say things are near of a nearness. When I say such things as the little soldiers are napping after lunch inside a bus with barred windows in front of the city hall. I say things are near of a nearness when I say empires, embassies practically next door, guarded by the napping soldiers. When I return, when I return, all grown up and bigger than the napping soldiers, I say things are small of a smallness, the dearness of it all. When I return, when I return, I look up at the TV screens above Father's Plaza, where sons of sons cheer the game of soccer for Father, even when Empire's embassy was practically next door. Knock on the door, kneel on the ground, and fill out the application which happens to be no more, since father's children have finally made it to the waived visa list. When I return, when I return, I say my twin of a Tunis paces the bridge over the river of oneness and translates exile of an exileness and empire of an empireness, while I trace the alleys of my childhood and find no one. When I return, when I return, all grown up and bigger than the napping soldiers, I say near of a nearness when I say Russian women take their daily stroll at night along the forest path behind Empire's heliport. And Filipino women with toddlers in broad daylight walk down the strip of clubs of clubs called a shopping mall because all signs are signs of signs. So my sister's place is, is the name of a grassroots organization. Um, it was the first organization that was set up um, near Camp Stanley to help women who were trapped in military prostitution. Um, I think that took place sometime late 70s. And that was a very risky thing to do. Um, and then in this poem that I just read, I also borrowed some phrases from uh, Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus. Um, next poem, Twin Flower, Master, Emily. I mentioned two uh, bombs. One is Tarzan. It's a 12,000 pound uh, conventional bomb, uh, which was developed after the World War II and it was used during the Korean War. And another bomb is called Daisy Cutter. It's a 15,000-pound bomb uh, used um, during the Vietnam War and also in Afghanistan um, until quite recently, 2008. Dear Twin Flower, only true men survived. Prior to military pornography, one never thought about petroleum byproducts. Tarzan bomb, a thing of the past, forgiven and forgotten. Daisy cutter, lags. Consent is everywhere. Geography, eternity, terminate the notion of class when carrying out simulated bombing runs. Division is thread-like, scallop-toothed, a pretense of some kind, willed arbitrarily. It takes approximately 20 minutes to cut the waste of a third world nation. Excellent, yet inferior. This is why we bang bang in the woods. It is every man's dearest wish, yours, master. Dear Emily, for poetry I have you. One need not be a house. One need not be a nation or master for that matter. Delicate and beautiful, common in rich mossy woods, 
in pairs we live. We are crimson pink, particularly in the mountains. The rough terrain is not visible to many, but somewhat green and fatigued, demilitarized. A nod from far away is hollow. True men, how shall I greet them? Nation building is kind and generous. It is common to decline it. Emily, shall I bloom? Yours, Twin Flower. Dear Twin Flower, your sister left me. She was cheerful, though maddened. Knows the doings of master. In fact, she lives it. Regretfully small and anxious, frequently far from home, do stay. I am so near myself. Your sister is too, near, far. How was it arranged? Suicide is not an option, perhaps resistance. Send me a portrait of your distance. For politics, I have water. White racism, which came to pervade the world, was an integral part of capitalist mode of production. Yours, Emily. Dear Master, I do. Autogeography, I do, deeply lobed, in defiance of pretentious form, I push a petal from my gown. An orator born from jets never met a translator. Orator, map out the wasteland between the front and the Chinese border. Such is neocoloniality. I do, auto-translation, I do. History can confront napalm. Sister's madness is as good as mine. We make the biggest picture in the world, shallow and spiked, nodding in air. We endure barbed wire. Daisy cutter can touch us, cut us, demolish our petals. Our gown can stain like a drape. Translator for hire, hire me. See you at DMZ. Yours, Twin Flower. So the phrase, we bang bang in the woods, um, was reported by a New York Times reporter in 1950, the first year of the Korean War. Uh, a South Korean policeman was about to execute 40 civilians who were supposedly communists. And the quote is from Bruce Cummings, Korea's Place in the Sun. One need not be a house, I push a petal from my gown, shall I bloom, uh, from Final Harvest, Emily Dickinson. White racism which came to pervade the world uh, is from How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney. Um, in pre-modern Korea, self-educated upper-class women wrote instructional uh, songs, poems, letters to um, their daughters. So it was passed down of woman to woman, mother to daughter. And they were usually written in um, vernacular Korean, Hangul. And um, these instructions spoke of fa family genealogy, proper conduct, duty, and obedience to husbands, in-laws, and parents. Instructions from the inner room. Females are silent, add plenty of detergent, emerge like a nation, sing as if you're male, your abdomen is hollow, call him and call him like a speaker on a high volume. Females are silent, set the water high and rise behind the loneliest trees. Tell him you're here, claim his wig is yellow, glow as if you care. Expose his shit right away, peel his moon if you dare. 
Place a kitchen knife deep inside the washer. Drain water and soap. Your arms ail. At the end of the spin, stay cool, stay mute. Answer the door. Answer the nation. It's yours. It's mine. It's him, yellow hair. A brief chat. Unload your load. Bang him against the dryer. Make a wig of him. Then propose. Let his hair grow inside you. Wash it daily with your heart. Life begins now. Have no doubt. Have no door. This is not your fault. Run the rinse cycle twice. Don't let the bubbles flow over. Life begins now. Have no doubt. Tea and language, they say, is a sensation. Why pee like a nation? On the domestic front, a quiet revolution is taking place. Son of a nation, nation's son. It's an issue. Tear a tissue, the tissue door. Use it to lift the cover. Rip another one for your ass. Drop it into the ball. Pee before it sticks to the bottom. Father is supreme. Your urine is serene. Turn around. Did you flush? Flush. Marry soon. Marry, marry again. Wait and wait, late, late. Marry him, him, my mate. Marry, marry your knuckles. Hierarchy is expensive. You want to die for your pensive. In forest, you want to die. In valley, you want to die. You want to die, boulders, fur. Alone, you want to die. Peel the detergent box. Blood carries dormant cysts. Did you rinse the cutting board? Do it again. Did you? Do it again. Do it. Did you? Hence, a son of a nation is a son of a butcher. He hooks cow's butt. He hooks. He hooks cow's neck. He hooks. He hooks cow's nose. He hooks. He hooks cow's ears. He hooks. He hooks cow's feet. He hooks. He hooks cow's lips. He hooks. He hooks cow's fat. He hooks. I have one more thing to tell you. Don't envy another's wealth. Don't be negligent of nation. Concentrate on house management. Pack bags, pack eggs, pack pegs, pack pigs. It's done, well done. Your in-laws will smile. Sit for a while. Your husband is the sky. He'll land one day. Act in a timely manner. Explain to him in an orderly fashion your zeal. Stand up appropriately when you leave. You're peeved. Pack up, pack north, pack down, pack south. Remove your seal and beg. Your husband is the sky. He'll land one day. Open his seam, then close. Open again. I'll read two um, sections from Maneg. It's a um, homophonic translation of Manteg by Moncho Archie. He's a, a Martinican poet, and he wrote it in Creole as well as in uh, French. So I um, did the sound, the sound imitation from his Creole uh, version. I say no, lame. Say no, lame. Say we care. Terror can't tell and bears a crown in the kitchen. May we? Who cares? Cunt can't battle. Key won't tear. Ugly decay. Care for pa and tell. We're lonely. So jailmen care. 
met a lavish man, met a landlord. Episode, loiter, ha, advanced on at all, assuming mellow. Me, countless, out to tear, saying, no, lend me. Say, I can't reign, end me. At least sit well, we command. Men say he, but tally say no, lame. Who can respond? None say none. My wind weigh low. Lie, egg, more lonely and bare, a callous lock. Truly, true lass, pause and care. Allow oat to chant. Let me say a line, a line. Titan of Adam, you seem dense. Let me say, in-law, in-law. I won't lay an eggy egg. Oh, tizzy. O tizzy of tame boy, do vent joy. O tizzy, come and land more. O tizzy, convey none on land. O tizzy, reign more. O tizzy, make man thought. O tizzy, same thought. O tizzy, lay off thought. O tizzy, lay away thought. I say sack, I mourn, taught by govern and lay. I say lay out the treaties. Kind of lone man, kind of late sing-along. Chuck baggage merrily, chuck baggage and then miss you. I solely lay beyond knit for jog. I'm going to just read one uh, new poem. <clears throat> it's not from the book, but just something I've been working on. Um, Petit Manifesto, number seven. See you later, translator. No, I'm not an agitator. It turns out that I'm a mere imitator, the lowly kind, which is none other than a translator, a mimicker of mimetic words in particular. Doubled consonants or certain parts of speech that are repeated on certain occasions, which can be said to be nobody's business, but they are, since everything in English is everybody's business. Far, far, swift, swift, zeal, zeal, stuff, stuff, waddle, waddling, sticky, sticky, cackle, cackled, drain, drained, flow, flow, yell, yell, stuff, stuff. I've just been instructed to get rid of them by an evaluator. Why double up? No, I'm not a collaborator. I'm actually very frail, frailer, than a thumbelina in the world of everybody's business. In my world of nobody's business, I twirl about frantically, frequently, far, far, to the point of failure, feigning, English, English. read more, but I was afraid to bore people. Okay.
exclusively this book, but to work a lot with the prose poem form, and I'm wondering, uh, and, and the short narrative prose form, I'm wondering uh, why you find that particularly attractive. Um, I don't know. Um, I just, um, like the instructions from the inner room, that, that, was, um, that was very short. And um, somehow that sort of fit, um, because I've read some, uh, you know, original um, instructional poems in Korean, and they were very short and long. So I think I was kind of following that format. But whereas the prose, I just, it's just what came out. Um, I wasn't just, I didn't think intentionally, you know, and say I'm going to write a prose poem. It's just what sort of naturally um, came out when I wrote. Emily Dickinson seems to be sort of a presence in your in your work. You you quote her a bit, and yeah. the name Emily comes up. So could you talk about uh, the work's relationship to Emily Dickinson? Well, I took a um, you know I wrote many of these poems um, at the Hugo House, um, which is in Seattle. Um, and just taking classes helped me, you know, gave me structure. And one of the classes that I took was on Emily Dickinson. And I was really um, taken by her letters to, uh, yeah. And um, I thought that was just really amazing work. So then I thought, um, well, what if I have Emily speak um, in a most unexpected way? Um, that she would be concerned politically as well. So that's how I kind of combined, integrated um, Emily into, and with other political phrases. And then, of course, the concerns of, you know, about the, the division of, of Korea, um, which took place right after um, Hiroshima was bombed. And um, so it was, you know, divided right in the middle um, it actually did take less than 30 minutes to do it by two Navy officers. Um, what is your writing process? Do you like dedicate a certain amount of time a week or a day to write, or do you just write when you get an idea for a poem? Um, I'm really very undisciplined and <laughs> lazy. <laughs> um, I try to write, um, try to devote one day a week, because that's all the time I have. Um, and then especially when I'm translating, I really can't write. Um, but I try to read and take some notes. And um, But this year I'm trying to write. Um, but I've written just a few poems, so I'm not really uh, very disciplined. Um, but I am thinking about things all the time, though. And I use post-its, you know, at work. Um, my work is very, you know, I don't teach poetry or writing. I teach GED. Um, so sometimes, you know, I have some certain ideas and I just write down on my post-its and I put them all over my calendar and bring them home and put it all over my computer. So that's basically how I begin. I, uh, I love homophonic translations. I really like mm -hmm. doing uh, homophonic translations. I think it's useful. It's something I use with students and, 
Um, no. Yeah. You, you know, I just wanted a break from translating for meaning. I just wanted to be free and just focus on the sound. And um, and I, I thought I was I was reading Franz Fanon, and he's also from Martinique, and, and I love uh, Césaire's work as well, and he's also from Martinique. So I was thinking about them, and I thought, okay, how can I uh, bring them into my poetry, into my writing? So then I came across this poem, um, actually at, at the Hugo House class too, um, and the exercise was to do a homophonic translation. So I just wanted, it allowed me to be free and also to be free from conventional grammar um, and meaning. So, um, but instead, you know, I ended up using Foucault's phrases from Foucault. <laughs> so, so I, no, I don't do it all the time. Um, I think in English because it's been too long. But um, I think I dream sometimes in Korean. <laughs> but you know, when I'm around, you know, Korean-speaking people and I speak a lot of Korean, then I start thinking in Korean. But just because I've been away from Korea for so many years. In terms of when you're reading your work to audiences, engaging with different audiences, I imagine you're sometimes uh, your, your work is clearly informed not only by, by a certain number of things in Korean history, but also by some particular personal and family and sense of experiences. Um, sometimes you must be talking to audiences for, for whom you know we don't know a lot about Korean history, and other times you must be talking to audiences where or I'm, I'm assuming you're not wrong, where they know a great deal more about it. And I would be I would be interested in hearing what you had to say about what, what that difference is like in terms of reading to people who are, you know, have more awareness of the history you're talking about as opposed to people who don't? I think so far I've only read to people who didn't know that much about Korean history. <laughs> um, and, you know, I read up a lot about Korean history while I was studying Korean um, contemporary Korean women's poetry because I wanted to know the context of the contemporary Korean poetry. So that's where I um, read up, uh, uh, did most of my reading. And of course, because of my father's, my parents' lives, you know, they went through the Korean War, survived it. And then my father not only documented, um, you know, what took place after the war, but also in Vietnam as well. Um, so I have some reference to that in the first poem that I read. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I, have, I don't really read that much. I don't, you know, I don't really give that many readings um, because it makes me nervous. <laughs> so I, I try to avoid it. Um, Thanks for coming. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I haven't really engage that much with the audience? I think this is the, the most questions I've answered. <laughs> That's probably enough. Thank you. <laughs>